Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. I believe it's a derivation of Ludwig von Mises' refutation of central economic planning to say that government is often the problem not because it stands for the wrong thing, but because it stands in the way and that the government and regulators are currently standing in the way of defined contribution schemes looking to invest in illiquid assets is probably the only point of agreement a libertarian would find with an environmentalist, though the latter are, counterintuitively in this sense alone, allergic to any talk of deregulation. Nonetheless, for our first topic today, we'll be examining what hurdles do exist, how many of them are in fact surmountable, and more broadly, whether it would be sensible to remove the hurdles altogether and create the 200-metre sprint. Then, from an ESG adjacent to a pure ESG story, someone has boldly contended that all the focus on the E in ESG has distracted from the S. For those of us distrustful of acronyms, the S is the bit where human beings actually live and work. Like certain woke multinationals, who put out plentiful press releases touting their environmental credentials, and rather fewer boasting about their political donations to modern-day slave owners and genocidaires, there is always a risk that the truth gets lost amid the virtue, and humans become inconvenient to the reforming zeal of their corporate masters. But is that beginning to change? Stephen Muir's interim chief executive at Big Society Capital tells pensions expert that there is both a moral and a financial case to be made for the S and ESG. We'll ask whether that case is being heard. Finally, though we were planning to talk again about the closure of the pensions regulator's consultation into its draft criminal powers, we have decided instead to opt for something new and hopefully more interesting, which is that the Department for Work and Pensions has discovered, or decided, that Chair's statements are somewhat less than useful. We'll ask why and what can be done to make them cheaper, more relevant, more effective to their role. My name is Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter of Pensions Experts. And I am joined today by Brian Henderson, partner and director of consulting at Mercer, with whom I am still trying to work out some kind of arrangement about the royalties, and by Shola Salako, accredited professional trustee at Dariada. Thank you both very much for joining me. We will begin then with uh, all those inconvenient truths that prevent defined contribution schemes from fully investing in illiquid and other alternative asset classes. Our friend Stephanie Hawthorne writes that though DB schemes had around 17.7% of their assets in unquoted shares and private equity in 2020, uh, DC schemes only tend to hold property, and even that isn't the easiest thing for them to invest in. Given the returns for some illiquid assets uh, can typically be higher than for liquid assets, the fear is that DC is missing out, while the country as a whole is missing out on the potential for DC schemes to be tapped, as it were, to aid in our post-COVID economic recovery. So I think, Brian, we'll kick off with you uh, on this subject, if you will. Yeah, so this issue has been around for a little while, I guess. First, first of all, to say that um, very keen on private markets, illiquidity, etc. There's a premium to be had, and why shouldn't DC schemes and their members get get their hands on that? You're right to say there have been some challenges in this space, and you know there've been a number of initiatives to get DC schemes to invest in everything private markets all the way through to venture capital, and and the same sort of issues keep cropping up. So issues on their own can be probably overcome but they take quite a lot of effort to do so. So what I'm thinking of is things like um, the charging structures, the fees, uh, the illiquidity, the pricing, the ability to put them on platforms. You know, there's a list, there's a list of about seven or eight of these areas that on, on their own individually, you know, you can work away at and, and overcome, but collectively you tend to find that they fall into the two hard box. And so what, what you end up um, doing in DC space is thinking, well, hang on, I can still generate decent returns by doing other things. So why, why put myself through all this pain to just eke out that extra little bit of added value on 10 to 15% of the assets? And now that, that's a pretty lame <laughs> excuse, but, but the reality is there's, there's some real practical challenges around about this. And I think 
I think nobody would push back and say that uh, liquids are a bad asset class. It's just there's some things we have to overcome. Sure, do you want to jump in on this? I mean, obviously, you've got a trustee's perspective here. So you've seen presumably DB schemes and all of their different investment strategies. And what would you say in response to what Brian has just laid out, some of the unique difficulties to DC? Are they as unique as, as is presented? Uh, or is it maybe just a, a lack of thought among some in DC that they haven't seen quite yet how to move into a liquids properly? Or does, does there actually need to be some wholesale regulatory change to remove some of these barriers, do you think? I think Brian is right. You have to remember that DC is quite different from DB. And also that normally with DC, people want daily trading. And illiquid doesn't lend itself to daily trading. And as Brian says, if I can get decent returns from other asset classes, why would I go to an asset class which is sometimes opaque and doesn't give me that flexibility? I think if from the members' point of view, it's about getting the returns and it's about transparency. So I think there's a reason illiquid doesn't work very well for DC. And if we remember what DC is about, then we keep in mind the points of DC. And illiquid is maybe is not necessarily the answer. There are other um, asset classes. And if illiquid wants to be the answer, then I'm not sure how it would do it. Ryan, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point, Sure. And I think we do have clients that have invested in illiquid assets in DC and typically, where they appear is in, within the default arrangement so that there's some control. So Shula's right, a sort of liquid, a liquid, if you like, is the answer where you can you can get access to a proportion of it. We use the ballast, if you like, of the default and the bigger asset pool to be able to make it work. So it's doable. And, um, you know, you can overcome challenges around the fees and you can work hard to get a platform to accept their liquidity or price them in a way that lets you get around that. And so all these things are kind of doable, uh, but typically it tends to be those schemes that have all the kind of governance and the overhead and can afford to do these kind of things, big sub subcommittees of investment teams. And it very quickly becomes out with the, the realm of the, the smaller, more modest schemes. And, and, and that's possibly an argument for consolidation um, and, and moving into bigger schemes. But the, the challenge, I think, when we've put these in is there's, you know, it's a one-year, two-year education programme and try to understand what, you know, what the implications of this are. It's, it's you know, to get that extra bit of premium, it, it, it takes a bit of work. Brian, if I can ask you just one more on this topic, um, I think in Stephanie's piece has mentioned that uh, there are, for instance, Nest is looking to allocate, I think, 5% of assets to private equity, smart pensions invested 10% of assets there is default fund in, in private markets. Master trusts generally have this, this economy of scale. They have a bit more clout. They have a bit more power. They have a bit more ability to invest in these kinds of things. And, of course, the government has been very keen, or the banks, so certain parts of the government and the governor of the Bank of England have both been keen to encourage DC in one way or another to tap into this green economic recovery, which involves a certain amount of infrastructure investment and things, as well as encouraging small schemes to consolidate if they can't prove their value for money. Does all of this lend itself toward that last drive, that you know there is no reason for small DC schemes to continue to proliferate? All of this is lending itself now toward consolidation of master trusts. Yeah, so, so maybe we should just step back and say there are small schemes that are perfectly well run and delivering good outcomes for members, irrespective of these ambitions for the government. So, but I, I, do, I do take the point that there is a direction of travel here and trustees, if you think about the government, has got quite a few things in its agenda when it comes to DC schemes, because you you've argued the point about infrastructure, there's private markets, there's a push in venture capital, there's a push in climate, ESG, 
impact investing. There's a raft of these things that are being encouraged to, to look at in DC schemes. And we, we have to invest for the right reasons, you know, and some of these will clearly enhance the diversification, the return aspirations of a, of a DC scheme, and therefore they should be considered. But as Shola says, it has to be considered in the round from the cost, the management of it, the, the governance of the asset class, um, the understanding of the asset class with the member when it doesn't go well. And as you said at the front, you know, we've got lots of schemes that have invested in property funds that are currently suspended and we can't get members' money out. And that's just a property fund. So take that to the extreme of a venture capital fund where it's tied up for seven years. And uh, you start to get into a very, very difficult place in terms of, and, and let's be clear, members do take money in and out of DC pension schemes. They don't just sit there forever. And the average tenure of a of an employee these days is, what, six, seven years. And so people will move. And there is some debate at the moment as to where the pot should go with the member when they move or what happens to those. And so you might not have all the time on your side to deliver the outcome. So you have to think carefully about how you allocate these asset classes. The default's the obvious place. But then if you've got a, a particular employer that's got a high degree of turnover, you need to think carefully about whether these asset classes are going to work. And if you are going to be stressed in terms of the, the turnover, if you haven't got the turnover, then yeah, it's a different debate. So I think there's... There's maybe six or seven areas that are getting put in front of us and, and probably one of them will um, be enough. We don't have to go for, go for them all. Okay, well, we'll move on then from that onto um, the broader ESG topic. Stephen Mewes has mentioned at the top, rights and pensions expert, that though the E and perhaps to a lesser extent the G have long been the focus of regulators and campaigners alike, the S has often been overlooked by comparison. But that could now be changing, he writes, as greater attention being paid to social factors, however broadly these might still be defined. Moreover, he claims there is evidence that there are an increased focus on the S in ESG can dramatically improve investment returns. Therefore, there is a financial as well as a moral case uh, for realignment in its favour. And Shola, I think I will start with you on this one, if you don't mind. The problem with ESG I've always found is that some of these terms are so broadly defined. What What is the social part? How would you define the social in ESG? Thank you for the question. I actually read some of the consultation on this. And I must say, I was waiting for when the, rest, when the S and the G would catch up with the E. I understand that climate change is very important. And in parts of the world, it's an existential problem. As we, I don't need to list the parts of the world that I have in issues. For me, the S, or from what I've read, they actually, it's actually financially, it's defined as financially material social factors. And it goes into some level of detail. Now, it's funny because when I looked at the list they gave, I thought, oh, it misses this, it misses that, and there's some other things there. So yes, in time, it will cover other things as well. But some of the things that it covered, which was practices about within a company and its supply chain, You've got health, you've got workforce conditions, modern slavery, remuneration practices, employee engagement, diversity and inclusion. And then it's got things around the products companies make and the way they sell it. And then in that bit, you've got customer, the products, the, the safety, including public health. And um, you see health comes again. You've got privacy, data, security, digital rights with more of us online, that becomes ever more important. It covers consumer protection. I mean, it covers so many things. I mean, it also covers, you'd be interested to note, the community aspect. So things like, I don't know, impact on local businesses, human rights, the treatment of indigenous people. 
it covers quite a few things. There are other things that I'm sure it will cover in time that it doesn't cover at the moment. But I, I mean, I really like this because what it does is it allows us to think for the industry to think in the round because normally we look just at the financial and now we're looking at the climate, at the environmental, now we look at the social. So I, I'm very happy that we are moving to the S of the ESG. Yeah, I, was, I think it was a National Review a couple of days ago, someone pointing out that the boss of JP Morgan, who, who wrote a very long letter to his staff about how seriously they're taking ESG, and especially the S part, and especially the community part of ESG. And then, of course, the same day it was revealed that JP Morgan was the principal sponsor behind the new Premier League Super League proposal, divorcing clubs from their communities. And um, I think someone, has, I'm sure someone has pointed out the hypocrisy to him at this point. I don't know what his answer would be, but I'm sure it would be very convincing. Brian, if I come to you on this... Obviously, the moral case is all very well. There is supposedly a financial case uh, for investing in the S, which Stephen Mears claims. I think he says that you can, in some way, improve investment returns about sixfold by making a sufficient focus on S in your ESG strategy. To what extent do these things still conflict? Are they coming into line with each other now more than perhaps they did in the past? Yeah, there's a sort of um, misconception, I think, that investment in the S somehow is detrimental to returns. Now, we're, not, we're never going to suggest that you invest in something because it's detrimental for returns. I mean, why would we be doing that? So clearly, you have to be careful about where you go in this space because whilst you have, might have some, some noble aspirations as to why you should invest, the reality is you know, we're still trying to deliver a pension for people to retire on, but it would be nice to get there in a way that was better for, for people en route uh, if it wasn't at the expense of their retirement. And so people like the Impact Institute and others work really hard to explain that you don't forego return. You know, you can invest in certain certain assets that will deliver the, the returns that you're looking for. And a lot of them tend to be quite nice in terms of delivery of income, particularly, which we're all looking for at the moment. But yet they, they still support, you know, a social element. And I think the issue, of course, will always be that whilst the demand is you know is there, the supply is what we all sort of clamour for. And for pension schemes, and we go back to DC schemes, how do you get access to this stuff? So, you know, again, it just makes sure there's enough product and solution there to, to support people's ambitions that do deliver the returns that they want, plus tick all the kind of the impact boxes, etc. From, from a social perspective. I think from, from my perspective, I've certainly seen good examples. They tend to be around property, etc. But there are things around that certainly you, you could potentially put into the mix, and they should they should be get looked at. So in, in the in the ES and G bit, I think the S bit is the one that it's probably the poor cousin at the moment to climate. That shouldn't be the case because they're they're all important and they're all very interlinked as well. Of course, you know you can find usually connections between the two. And, and therefore, in the round, there are asset classes that we should all you know, be considering. Just one more on this point, Shoda, if I may. Uh, there's obviously everybody knows about greenwashing in connection with the E of the ESG. Is there sufficient, are there sufficient safeguards to block against whatever the equivalent would be called in terms of the S amount? I'm thinking in this Vincent Delward of the um, Stonex Group uh, a while ago, it was covered in the Financial Times, wrote that, the S in ESG can often be skewed toward, for instance, big tech companies because they employ very few people. They have fewer human resources complaints. They don't generally score higher on the S part. And that actually has a bias against human workforces, which in its own way is a bit antisocial, but nevertheless scores well socially in terms of ESG. Is it 
sufficiently well understood that people can avoid convenient traps, shall we call them, as far as implementing the S goes? I'm not sure it is, but it will become so in time. I think one of the things that this S does is it's an opportunity for the industry, for the pensions industry to engage with, particularly on the DC side with members. And I think the other thing as well we need to remember is that in a digital world, what companies do, I mean, you've just given an example. There's one thing you might write, but what you do, people can easily just look it up online, either through social media or some other way, and immediately make the comparison between what your statements is saying against what you're doing. So, yes, I think it's an opportunity and will become so um, if companies recognize it as an opportunity. Because it, I, mean, I can't think of an example now, but I'm sure there's plenty, like the one you've just given, where a company says one thing and it's fine to be doing another. And particularly with DC, I imagine that with younger members, they're going to see these things. Um, we'll move on finally to a discussion not of uh, the Pension Regulators Clause 107 in its draft criminal powers policy, because on Tuesday it uh, published its review, the findings of its review into chair's statements. There is a connection between the two, I would suggest, which is that neither are quite fit for purpose. But the DC chair statement, sorry, is uh, what we're going to go for. Too expensive, too complicated, nobody knows who they're for, nobody really reads them. Shona, let's kick off with you for this one. You've probably seen an awful lot of these in the past, and you're probably one of the few people who has, judging by some of the figures about who does read them and who doesn't. What needs to be done to fix these? I mean, what can anything be done to fix them? Thank you for the question. I think we need to go back to first principles. As I said earlier, when chess statement came out, different pension schemes prepared their own, and then they were told that there had to be compliance. And the pensions regulator came out with all these things that had to be in the chair statement. So to an extent, they contributed to the length and the complexity. So if we go back to first principles, which is why are we doing it? Who is it for? Then starting at that point, you can then decide if it's for a normal pension member, does it need to have 10 pages or five pages worth of information? What are the necessary things that needs to go into it? And then from there, we can then get a chest statement that works. I'm not surprised people don't read it. I prepare it for pension schemes and I see them and it takes a long time. And even as a pensions literate professional, I consider them fairly complicated. Well, you do. I'm sure I certainly would as well. And I've not had the, the joy of reading them so far. And Brian, the figure I saw quoted was that they can take somewhere between 15000 and £20,000 to produce some of these. And trying to keep them ta- or tailor them to the regulator as well as to members is apparently just not, not possible. If you had a very short sort of prospectus to change them, what, what would you do? Separate the two out, perhaps? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, th- I think the intention was a reasonable one at the start. But... but- They've just become too unwieldy. You know, in some cases, I mean, I've seen some that are heading up to 100 pages long. Who's going to read that? They're they're really technical. There's like too much in there. They're super complicated. And and of course, they were meant for member engagement. And if anything, it's the the complete opposite. The most unengaging things ever. (laughs) So it's now become a kind of like fancy governance tool and um, produced great effort and expense from, from trustees. And in their words, what do they say? It does not work as a communications tool for members and there's little evidence that members know it exists. It's a bit of damning indictment about the state of the thing. So I think the principle is a good one, but it's, got, it's gone too far. And I think 
as a member looking in, you want to, what do you want to know? I mean, you want to know that your scheme's been run well, you know, you've been well looked after, you're, you're invested in good places, and um, you've got a bunch of trustees that are kind of looking after you and making sure that you're going to end up in a decent place and they're going to do everything they can to implement that. And, and, and you know, things like transaction cost analysis and the value for money report and getting starts to come in, you, th- you think, you know, in some ways, and don't take this the wrong way, but we're, we're focusing more and more on things that matter less and less. And, you know, if you speak to a member that you, you, you've got two basis points in your favour on transaction costs for your investment, it's just like, well, they're not interested. I mean, it's good that these things get monitored, but, you know, the chair statement should be a chair statement. It's like it's like an overview of what's happened with the fund over the year. And, you know, it, it, should, it should be of value to the members. And if it's not of value for the members, then we're wasting our time because it's, it's not meeting its original objective. So, um, yeah, it's expensive and it's not getting read. So what does that tell you? Shona, just finally on this, um, it's been suggested that one of the ways of improving it might be to give the pensions regulator a bit more power to discriminate between whom it applies its fines to. At present, they're mandatory. There's been some calls for it to be a little bit more leeway, more more leeway to be given as far as the, the regulator applying fines for non-compliance goes. Is that a good idea, do you think? I mean, will, will that be, will that happen? Would it help? Yeah, they should always have been discretionary because each scheme is is unique in its own way. And I suspect that having that mandatory fine probably contributed to the, I can't imagine a hundred page chair statement because you want to make sure you cover everything. Certainly, I think that's the way to go. I mean, the other thing that they could do is maybe have a chair statement that has the 50 pages, but have a much more like a member's newsletter type one, which is about pictures, you know, short, short messaging so that the member at least looks at it. So, yes, the member gets something that they'll read because it, it speaks to them directly or even make it um, delivered in a social media fashion. And then you also get the one that the regulator, if they look at it, can see that the pension scheme and the trustees have are compliant with, with their requirements. Yeah, that's a good point. So sorry, sorry to just cut in, Benjamin, just really quickly. Um, to say that uh, what, what we've been doing recently um, to overcome all this is to do like a one or two page infographic. And um, yeah, you can go away and have, a, as you see, have a look at the full thing if you want. But the one or two pages of infographic just brings out the highlights in a picture form. And, you know, it's, it's easy, it's accessible, it gets the messages across the key things. And um, without getting into the minutiae of some some of the detail that really would be lost on 99.9% of members. And so that's maybe the way forward. We'll get to that kind of less is best approach to this stuff. Member engagement that engages members is uh, so revolutionary. No wonder the DWP didn't think of it, some might say. But um, that sounds sensible enough to me. From one um, partially intelligible subject to another, for our always a pensions angle, Brian, I think you're not the only person who spotted a slightly curious name change to have taken place. I suppose the challenge is, can you pronounce the name change for us? So um, this is Aberdeen or Aberdeen or Aberdeen. I'm I'm not sure how we were meant to pronounce it. Um, It made me think of Countdown the other day there, sort of give me a vowel, give me a vowel. No, I don't want any vowels actually. Take all the vowels out, just give me consonants. <laughs> and and what, what do you end up with? So E B R D N. And I know it's a standard life bit of it get dropped, but I don't think that would have worked. It would have looked really confusing piece of nondescript letters. Anyway, Aberdeen is now Aberdeen. 
And, you know, I look forward to other companies doing likewise. But certainly it's, they've, they've done well to get the attention. I have to say lots of folk are giving it attention. I'm not sure it's the right attention, but hey ho. <laughs> no such thing as bad publicity. It's gone from being Scottish to being Welsh at a stroke of a pen. That brings us, I think, to the close of the programme. Uh, thank you very much to Brian and to Shoda for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening to us. We will, as ever, be back in two weeks' time, and we look forward to seeing you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.